Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hello, welcome back to the Mod Pod. And for those of you here for the first time, thanks for joining us. This episode features three articles from the April issue of Modern Optometry. Two from our cover focus on cornea and anterior segment disease, and one from the neuro-optometry files. Let's dive right in with a brief review of corneal dystrophies for the practitioner most likely to encounter these conditions. That's you, moderators. Here's Stephen Sorkin, Director of Contact Lens Services at Corneal Associates of New Jersey in Fairfield, New Jersey, with the rundown. Corneal dystrophies are commonly encountered in the optometric practice. They're a group of hereditary corneal diseases typically classified by the anatomic layer that is affected. The optometrist is frequently the first healthcare provider to see these patients, and we are well equipped to diagnose and manage these conditions. Corneal dystrophies are all inherited by lateral, non-inflammatory, non-vascularized, slowly progressive, and unassociated with systemic disease. They're caused by abnormal cellular metabolism and eventually affect the clarity of the cornea. There is emerging molecular science that will ultimately reconfigure our understanding and classification of these conditions. For now, the basic review provided in this article is intended to supplement any information gaps in your existing knowledge of corneal dystrophies. The most common corneal dystrophy is anterior basement membrane dystrophy, also known as epithelial basement membrane dystrophy, EBMD, or mapped off fingerprint dystrophy. EBMD is bilateral, but typically asymmetric, and it exhibits changes to the epithelial basement membrane and abnormal adhesion of the basal cells. Many patients with this condition are asymptomatic. The most common symptoms are a mild foreign body sensation and blurred vision, which is caused by irregular astigmatism and a reduced tear breakup time. Negative fluorescence staining can be observed during a soot lamp examination. EBMD is easy to overlook, but is critical to diagnose prior to refractive or cataract surgery because it can affect biometry measurements. Incorrect biometry can cause altered IOL or refractive surgery calculations, which can lead to poor results in unhappy patients. Approximately 10% of patients with EBMD will experience recurrent corneal erosion, or RCE. When a patient presents with a corneal abrasion, it is important to examine the contralateral eye as 50% of patients with RCE will exhibit EBMD in the fallow eye. There are multiple treatment strategies for RCE, including palliative therapies such as drops and ointments. Maximizing the health of the ocular surface by aggressively treating eyelid disease is imperative in order to minimize RCE. Lid hygiene, thermal or intense pulse laser treatment, and nutritional supplementation are also important therapies. Cyclosporin or Zyja can be used along with punctal occlusion to treat concurrent dry eye. Adding topical steroids and doxycycline for one to two months to reduce matrix metalloproteinase related surface inflammation can be helpful. Amniotic membranes and long-term use of bandage contact lenses are also another approach. Biologics such as regenerized ophthalmic solution and autologous serum drops are also used to treat RCE. Options for surgical management include epithelial debridement, diamond bar polishing, interostromal puncture, and PTK. Other types of corneal dystrophy involve the stroma, the thickest layer of the cornea. Stromal dystrophies include macular, granular types 1 and 2, lattice, and Schneider corneal dystrophy. 
Patients with macular corneal dystrophy present with grayish opacities in the superficial stroma that eventually migrate through the deeper and stroma layers. Although this is the less, least common stromal dystrophy, it affects visual acuity most significantly of all the stromal dystrophies. Macular corneal dystrophy is the only, only autosomal recessive corneal stromal dystrophy, and also the only dystrophy that extends out to the limbus. It can extend even to decimase membrane, leading to corneal guttata, a very poor visual prognosis and a need for full thickness penetrating keratoplasty, PKP, sometimes as early as the second or third decade of life. In addition to decreased vision, other symptoms include foreign body sensation, photophobia, and discomfort. There is also a high rate of recurrence after PKP. Granular corneal dystrophy type 1 exhibits breadcrumb deposits in the stroma that grow, penetrate deeper into the stroma, and increase over time. These deposits are limited to the central cornea. RCE is, is also common with granular dystrophy, Surgical treatment options include deep anterior lamellar keratoplasty, DALK, and PKP. Granular dystrophy type 2, also known as granular lattice or abelino corneal dystrophy, possesses features of both lattice and granular dystrophy. RCE is again a common sequela. This type of dystrophy can be expressed after eczema laser vision correction surgery. Avigen is a genetic test that can be used to screen patients for the presence of corneal dystrophies in keratoconus before they undergo LASIK. Lattice corneal dystrophy manifests as branching refractile lines in the anterior central stroma that thicken and form areas of stromal opacification, affecting visual acuity. The peripheral cornea remains clear, however. Many patients with lattice also experience RCE. Surgical options include PTK, PKP, and DALK. PTK can remove opacities only from the anterior stromal corneal stroma. Anterior segment OCT can be used to localize and measure the depth of corneal opacities to determine whether PTK is indicated. Typically, 110 microns is the depth limit for PTK treatment. Any extension of the dystrophy deeper into the stroma will require corneal transplantation. After a keratoplasty procedure, all stromal dystrophies have a high rate of recurrence in the new graft. Gas permeable contact lenses can be used to rehabilitate vision. Recently, scleral lenses have become an important part of the treatment algorithm as they can provide both vision improvement and therapeutic benefits in protecting the corneal surface and reducing the need for corneal transplantation. The presence of corneal crystals facilitates the diagnosis of Schneider corneal dystrophy, but this finding is present in only 50%, 54% of those with the condition. Scotopic vision tends to remain good. However, a disproportionate loss of photopic vision with complaints of glare have led to the need for PKP in most patients 50 years and older. The furthest posterior corneal layer is the endothelium. It is one cell layer thick and its pump function helps to maintain corneal transparency. All endothelial dystrophies affect this fluid pump, causing increased hydration of the cornea and eventually leading to edema and loss of corneal clarity. The three most common endothelial corneal dystrophies are Fuchs, General Hereditary Endothelial Dystrophy, CHED, and Posterior Polymorphous Corneal Dystrophy, PPMD. Fuchs dystrophy is bilateral and autosomal dominant and occurs in women more commonly than men. Coronal dutata is the hallmark finding in which abnormal endothelial secretions from decimase membrane form. In addition, the endothelial cells have disrupted morphology, and pleomorphism and polymegatism can be seen on specular microscopy. Patients will com frequently complain of blurry vision, particularly in the morning upon awakening. Halos also may affect visual function. Hypertonic ointments and drops may be helpful early on, along with bandage contact lenses to treat epithelial bullae. However, endothelial keratoplasty is indicated if visual function and chronic corneal edema are present. Techniques for endothelial graft have evolved in decimate stripping, automated endothelial keratoplasty to sake, and decimate membrane endothelial keratoplasty to make are now the preferred approaches over traditional PKP. 
These lamellar procedures offer a faster recovery, improved visual acuity, less postoperative astigmatism, and less risk, risk of rejection. A more recently developed technique is decimate stripping only DSO, also known as decimetorexis without endothelial keratoplasty, in which patients with only central glutata can undergo a less invasive procedure without the need of a corneal transplant. A decimetorexis is performed, removing the central diseased endothelial cells and leaving the healthy peripheral cells intact. Recovery can take up to six months while the endothelial cells migrate to the central area with the assistance of a rokinase inhibitor. There is no need for long-term corticosteroid use and no risk of rejection with DSO. CHED has two presentations. Type 1 is inherited as an autosomal dominant trait and is characterized by edema of the cornea, pain, and clear corneas at birth that become cloudy later in infancy. CHED type 2, inherited as an autosomal recessive trait, is more common. It is characterized by corneal edema and cloudy corneas at birth. Nystagmus is also associated with this form of CHED. PPMD is an uncommon corneal dystrophy that can prevent at birth and later in life. PPMD is typically bilateral, although one eye may be more severely affected than the other. It is affected by lesions of the endothelium. Most patients are asymptomatic, but in severe cases, stromal edema, photophobic, decreased vision, and foreign body sensation can have been reported. Glaucoma occurs in 13% of patients with PPMD. Corneal dystrophies are frequently encountered in optometric practice, which is why it is important to be able to diagnose, identify, and manage these conditions. Medical treatment, use of contact lenses when appropriate, and collaborative care with a cornea specialist for surgical intervention may be required. Regular examination of the family members of patients with corneal dystrophies can uncover the inheritance patterns of these conditions. Because optometrists are positioned to frequently encounter corneal dystrophies, it's important for them to be able to diagnose, identify, and manage these conditions. Are you up to the challenge? Ready for another article on the anterior segment? Next, let's hear from Shore Ansari, who is an adjunct faculty member at Southern California College of Optometry at Marshall B. Ketchum University in Fullerton, California. She has some great diagnostic pearls to share for giant papillary conjunctivitis. Giant papillary conjunctivitis, or GPC, is characterized by the presence of giant papillae on the superior tarsal conjunctiva that can be visualized upon eyelid aversion. Although the pathophysiology is not well understood, it is believed to be a result of an immunologic process that results from foreign bodies, such as contact lenses, exposed sutures, ocular prosthetics, and filtering blebs. The etiology is likely multifactorial and involves immediate and delayed hypersensitivity reactions caused by chronic mechanical trauma to the superior tarsal conjunctiva. The most common cause of GPC is contact lens wear, also referred to as contact lens-induced papillary conjunctivitis. Multiple factors are involved in the development of GPC in contact lens wearers, these include the frequency of contact lens replacement, type of contact lens, wearing time, contact lens hygiene, lens size, and lens fit. Studies have shown that the risk of developing GPC is greater in patients wearing monthly replacement lenses as compared to those wearing more frequently replaced lenses. GPC is also more common in soft contact lens wearers than in rigid gas permeable lens wearers, and the incidence is similar between silicone hydrogel and HEMA-based hydrogel lenses. GPC can develop 
after months or years of successful asymptomatic contact lens wear. Soft contact lens wearers develop the condition sooner than RGP wearers. In addition to higher prevalence and shorter time of onset, soft contact lens wearers also experience more severe symptoms. Patients with GPC will typically report ocular irritation, redness, itching, and mucus accumulation on the inner canthus upon awakening. Contact lens wearers may also complain of fluctuating vision and excessive lens movement, resulting in contact lens intolerance. On clinical examination, the superior tarsal conjunctiva may show inflammation in papules, usually larger than 0.3 millimeters. Sign and symptoms are typically bilateral, although unilateral cases have been reported. It is important to note that in the very early stages of GPC, symptoms may precede signs, and some patients may consider these symptoms to be normal contact lens discomfort. Therefore, practitioners should question patients at each visit to elicit details of symptoms that are consistent with GPC. As GPC progresses, the superior tarsal conjunctiva undergoes gradual inflammatory changes, beginning with nonspecific signs that progress into the development of the large papules that give the condition its name. To evaluate patients with suspected GPC, it is best to have them remove their contact lenses and to examine the conjunctiva and cornea at the slit lamp biomicroscope. Evaluate the anterior segment and note any bulbar conjunctival injection, corneal panis, or corneal opacities before averting the lids. After averting the superior eyelids, evaluate the tarsal conjunctiva for hyperemia, abnormal vascular patterns, subconjunctival scarring, and papules. The use of fluorescein and a cobalt blue filter can significantly aid in visualization of the papillary reaction. Fluorescein in the tear film helps outline the papules, which allows the practitioner to better identify the pattern and size of the papules. Other types of papillary conjunctivitis can present similarly to GPC. When evaluating patients with suspected GPC, we should have vernal keratoconjunctivitis, or VKC, and atopic keratoconjunctivitis, or AKC, on the list of differential diagnoses. VKC is a chronic allergic conjunctivitis that affects children and young adults between the ages of 6 and 18 years. It is more common in boys than girls. Patients with VKC may also experience other allergic disorders, such as seasonal allergies and asthma. Signs and symptoms of VKC can vary with the season, spring and summer being the worst. VKC has two forms, palpebral and limbal. In the palpebral form, findings include giant papillary hypertrophy of the superior tarsal conjunctiva. In the limbal form, limbal papillae with epithelial infiltrates consisting of eosinophils called Horner-Trantus dots are present. Superior punctate corneal lesions can be seen in both forms, and these can coalesce into sterile shield ulcers in the upper part of the cornea. The presentation of AKC is similar to that of VKC, but it affects a different demographic. 
AKC typically appears in the late teens or early 20s with peak incidence between the ages of 30 and 50 years. It occurs in up to 40% of patients with atopic dermatitis and is closely associated with a personal or family history of atopic disease such as asthma and eczema. Patients may present with eczema of the eyelids along with other signs that are characteristic of atopic dermatitis, such as eyelid skin hyperpigmentation and infraorbital eyelid folds known as Denny Morgan lines. Findings on the superior tarsal conjunctiva for AKC are similar to those seen in VKC and GPC. However, the inferior palpebral conjunctiva is generally more affected in AKC, and this difference helps make it clinically distinguishable from VKC and GPC. Removing the inciting agent is the best management approach to GPC. Because the vast majority of GPC is caused by contact lenses, the first step should be discontinuation of lens wear for two to four weeks. In treatment of GPC related to contact lens wear, the frequency of contact lens replacement is an important factor. Patients wearing one-day or two-week disposable lenses have significantly less risk of developing GPC than those wearing lenses that are replaced at monthly or longer intervals. For patients who are at high risk for GPC, Fitting with frequently replaced lenses may be a better strategy than incorporating enzymatic cleaning into their care systems. If refitting a patient to frequently replace lenses is not an option due to cost, availability of parameters, or RGP wear, use of a rub and rinse cleaning technique is advisable. This technique is effective in reducing bacterial load and removing deposits on lenses, especially those with silicone hydrogel materials. In addition to discontinuing contact lens wear, topical therapeutics may be prescribed for GPC. Topical mast cell stabilizers, such as chromalin sodium 4% and alamide, are effective against GPC and can be used during the period of lens discontinuation. Antihistamine and mast cell stabilizer drops such as Pataday once daily relief extra strength, are also safe and effective and can bring symptomatic relief, especially for itching. In severe GPC, topical steroids such as Predforte, Prednisolone phosphate 1%, and Dexamethasone 0.1% may be helpful. However, the risk of side effects with long-term steroid use must be discussed with the patient. Lodamax has been shown to be safe and effective in improving signs and symptoms when used four times per day for six weeks. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are another treatment option that can be used as an adjunct to topical steroids or as an alternative therapy when steroids are contraindicated. The prognosis for GPC is excellent once the offending agent is removed or changes in contact lens wear schedule and hygiene have been implemented. Note, however, that persistent non-compliance can lead to recurrences. Eyelid eversion should be part of a routine eye exam for contact lens wearers, and practitioners should be proactive in identifying early signs and symptoms of GPC. 
educating patients about the benefits of frequently replaced contact lenses and proper contact lens hygiene can prevent the condition from becoming more problematic and difficult to treat. The takeaway from that last article, differential diagnoses for GPC should include other types of papillary conjunctivitis with similar presentations. Now let's change gears and find out how to spot a neurologic condition from Carlo Plino, who is chief of the Eye Institute of Salis University in Chestnut Hill, Pennsylvania. He put this next piece together with Joseph Bizimenti, senior clinical instructor at Rosenberg School of Optometry at the University of the Incarnate Word in San Antonio, and Claire Bizimenti, who is a professor at Rosenberg School of Optometry. Let's find out why proper history, thorough examination, testing, imaging, and communication are essential for timely diagnosis and management. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. The eye is a window to the brain and the rest of the central nervous system, enabling optometrists to identify telltale signs of neurological conditions. Some of these disorders are sight-threatening, and others can be life-threatening. The ability to recognize both the distinct and subtle symptoms and clinical signs of neuroophthalmic disease puts optometry in a position to positively affect a patient's quality of life. Prompt, appropriate examination and additional workup are critical in establishing an acute diagnosis. Facilitating timely medical or surgical treatment when necessary is of utmost importance to ensure a positive ocular and systemic outcome. This article describes some of the don't miss signs that every clinician should know about. The neuroophthalmic examination always begins with a thorough history. This includes eliciting the patient's chief complaint along with his or her specific medical history, ocular history, social history, review of systems, and a list of present medications. The history should be followed by a comprehensive ophthalmic assessment of the afferent visual system. Spatial resolution of vision, best corrected visual acuity, in each eye should be determined at distance and near, including a refraction, pinhole, or potential acuity images. Color vision via Ishihara pseudo-isochromatic plates or Hardy-Rand-Rittler plates, pupillary testing, visual field testing, including confrontation field, static automated perimetry, Goldman kinetic manual perimetry or tangent screen, contrast sensitivity, brightness comparison, and photostress recovery testing should all be performed, along with a thorough examination of the fundus with direct and indirect ophthalmoscopy. The neuroophthalmic examination should then concentrate on the efferent system, Disorders of this system usually include ocular misalignment or motility, whether comitant or incomitant. Issues such as diplopia, head tilt, face turn, etc. should all be looked at. The testing should be performed in a systematic way to efficiently identify a potential neuroophthalmic cause and potential life-threatening condition. Evaluation of the efferent system should include ductions, inversions, saccades, pursuits, eyelid positioning and function, pupillary testing that includes symmetry, size, and reactivity, 
and a nystagmus evaluation. Forced duction and doll's head maneuver testing may be performed as needed. The optometrist may need to perform a quick exam to evaluate the patient's mental status, motor reflexes, coordination and gait, and general sensory receptors. The signs and symptoms discussed below, even though they may be intertwined at times, should make the eye care provider aware of a possible neurological etiology. A discussion of the test that would rule out a neurological etiology is beyond the scope of this article. But in all cases of neurologic eye disease, the clinician should use his or her professional judgment in deciding when to obtain consultation or make a referral. When in doubt, such consult or referral should be prompt and the patient should be evaluated by a neuro-ophthalmologist, a neurologist, or an optometrist skilled in neuro-eye disease. Frequent causes of sudden vision loss include arteritic and non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, branch or central retinal artery occlusion, ocular ischemia, optic neuritis, pituitary apoplexy, ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, and acute meningitis. An acquired ptosis may occur in conditions such as a third cranial nerve palsy, myasthenia gravis, and Horner's syndrome. And that Horner's syndrome caused by carotid artery dissection, intracranial malformation, or an apical lung disease. Binocular diplopia. This condition may be caused by cranial nerve paresis due to aneurysm, arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, multiple sclerosis, stroke, or tumors. Myopathies such as myasthenia gravis and nutritional deficiencies such as Wernicke's encephalopathy. Diplopia is the most common symptom of the efferent system. Cranial nerve 3, 4, and 6 palsies, myasthenia gravis, thyroid eye disease, skew deviation, internuclear ophthalmoplegia, chronic progressive external ophthalmoplegia, and dorsal midbrain syndrome, known as Paranaut syndrome, should all be ruled out. Non-physiological anisocoria may present in a partial or complete third cranial nerve palsy caused by cerebral aneurysm or ischemia. It could also be caused by a Horner syndrome in anisocoria and uncle transtentorial herniation. An example of a true ocular emergency affecting the efferent system is a pupil-involved third nerve palsy. The presenting signs and symptoms may signal an apparent aneurysm that could eventually rupture and lead to a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Also known as the ocular motor nerve, the third cranial nerve supplies several extraocular muscles, the levator muscle, the ciliary muscle, and the iris sphincter. Because of the nerve's vast representation, a third nerve palsy has a varied presentation that can include ocular movement disturbances, ptosis, and pupillary abnormalities such as a sluggish or dilated fixed response. In this instance, time is of the essence to rule out a comprehensive lesion, an aneurysm. Giant cell arteritis needs to be ruled out. Pituitary apoplexy, midbrain infarction, or demyelinating disease. Blood tests along with certain neuroimaging techniques such as a magnetic resonance angiography or CT angiography must be performed. True papilledema is defined as optic nerve swelling due to high intracranial pressure. Its causative conditions can include hydrocephalus, spinal cord lesions, cerebral sinus drainage impairment, intercerebral mass, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. A thorough neuro-ophthalmic workup helps the clinician sort through the many different diagnoses. 
visual function losses, the feared morbidity of papilledema. Treatment is directed at the underlying cause of the high intracranial pressure, and options include both medical and surgical modalities. Nystagmus is a spontaneous, repetitive to and fro movement of the eyes. Acquired nystagmus may result from transient ischemic attack, stroke, intracranial hemorrhage, demyelinating disease, or tumor. The two main types of acquired adult nystagmus are jerk, named for its fast corrective phase, and pendular, which has a slow back and forth phase. Neoplastic disease representing as an acquired nystagmus may involve brainstem and or cerebellar vestibular pathways from the otoliths to the cerebellum and from the entire brainstem up to the thalamus. Neuroophthalmic signs of head and neck trauma may include carotid cavernous fistula, a painful Horner syndrome, secondary to a carotid artery dissection, and traumatic optic neuropathy. A carotid cavernous fistula is an abnormal connection between the cavernous sinus and the carotid artery and its branches. A carotid cavernous fistula may either be direct, such as a high flow, or spontaneous, which is indirect or low flow. Carotid cavernous fistula can occur because of either trauma or spontaneous causes. These carotid cavernous fistulas may occur after head injuries in which the intracavernous carotid artery is torn. Patients with carotid cavernous fistula present with a classic triad of chemosis, pulsatile exophthalmus, and inocular brewery. Proptosis, diplopia, and vision loss may result from these fistulas. Sudden onset ptosis, a dilated pupil, diplopia, and a sore scalp with jaw pain are among the signs and symptoms of a neuroophthalmic condition that can threaten sight and life. The optometrist is sometimes the first healthcare practitioner the patient sees. It is essential to know how to take a proper history, conduct a thorough examination, and order laboratory testing and imaging, and when to refer a patient to the appropriate subspecialist in order to ensure timely treatment and management. Keep an eye out for red flags and you just might save a life. Want more mod content? Give your fingers a nice stretch and ask them to take you to modernode.com. Or wait until next month to hear articles on ocular ptosis, pediatric dry eye, and ocular melanoma. The episode will also include our up-close Q&A with Jackie Garlic. And one last thing before we go, who doesn't love a good joke, right? They're great icebreakers for patients, especially the younger ones. Well, there's a chance you've already heard this one, so my apologies if that's the case, but it's quick. Which part of the body dies last? The eyes, because they dilate. That's all for now. Be well, and thanks for listening. Thank you.